Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney. We are just about a week away from the end of our spring semester. Students, we are praying that God will bless you with an extra measure of grace and alertness as you approach final exams and assignments over the next week or so. We love you and are grateful for another blessed semester of life together here at Beeson Divinity School. I'm excited to report that our friend Carl Ellis is back on campus today and is with me right now for an interview in the podcast studio. But before I introduce him, let me make two announcements. First, our spring commencement and service of consecration will be on April 28th at 11 a.m. in Hodges Chapel. Our speaker will be my friend and former student, Dr. Julius Kim, who is president of the Gospel Coalition. He will speak to our graduates on pointers to grace. And second, our Atlanta area Beeson Alumni Fellowship invites you to dinner at Echo Buckhead's private room on April the 21st at 7 p.m. Find details and register at beesondivinity.com slash events. Our new Anglican professor of divinity here at Beeson, Dr. Jonathan Linebaugh, will attend and offer remarks. And all alumni in attendance will receive a copy of Dr. Linebaugh's new book, The Word of the Cross, Reading Paul. All right, Dr. Ellis, thank you very much for being with us again today. It's great to have you with me here in the studio. It's good to be back. wonder if we could begin by just asking you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. How did you come to know the Lord, and how did you become a minister of the gospel? That's a great question. Um, from a very young age, I remember I, I had this pretty decent relationship with God. I knew who He was and all, and I just somehow just knew that I wanted to, wanted to know Him better. But as I grew, I began to become aware of the fact that I was a sinner. By the time I was about six or seven, I knew I was a sinner. I knew I, I had uh, messed up in the, rela the relationship, let's put it that way. So for the next few years, I really desired to fix that relationship. And, uh, and I, you know, I was, I was raised in the church, and I would always ask, how do you get to know God? People say, well, you've got to go to church, and you've got to go to Sunday school. You've got to do this and that and the other. But I never heard the gospel. I'm not saying they didn't, they didn't share it with me. It's just that I didn't hear it. If, if you speak, in, speak to me in Swahili or something, then, I, you know, I, I don't understand Swahili yet. No, I'm still <laughs> working on it. Anyway, so long story short, I, be, I became kind of uh, disillusioned, I, I'd say. I'd been a Protestant. I'd been a Catholic. I'd come back to be a Protestant. I remember when I was a Catholic, soon after I was baptized Catholic. And the reason I was baptized Catholic is because I was uh, in New York at the time, and the public schools wouldn't accept me, and the Catholic school did, but they said you had to become a Catholic. So that's how I became a Catholic. Right after that, Pope Pius XII died. And I thought, huh, if anybody knew he was going to heaven when he died, it has to be the Pope. So I decided right then and there that I wanted to be the Pope one day. <laughs> as much as I hated Christianity, you know what I'm saying? So I decided to be an altar boy. I was already, you know, make the, make the study climb. But back in those days, that was before the Vatican reforms, you know? So everything was in Latin. And my stumbling block was Latin. I, I could not get Latin. I just had a mental block to it. I couldn't. So that killed that. So anyway, long story short, back to the Protestant church. 
But I kept hearing this business of go to church, be good. And I said, this has got to be something better than that. So uh, I became about as anti-Christian as one could be. Uh, Malcolm X did more for me than anybody else to turn to, to, to prepare me to hear the gospel. Basically, what it was, when you're in the, when you're in the dom- subdominant culture in a, in a society, yeah, I didn't know what this was called then, but we call them microaggressions today. You, hear, you see a lot of microaggressions, you know, like you go to the drugstore and uh, you get a Band-Aid or something, you know, and it says flesh color. What's, what's that? You know what I'm saying? Things like that. Mm-hmm. All right, just a lot of little pinpricks. Anyway, it did a number on my self-esteem. And so when Christians would come to me and they say, you're a no-good sinner, I didn't want to hear that. You know, I didn't want to hear that. I already knew that, you know. But anyway, Malcolm said, hey, you got dignity, you got worth, you got nobility, you know, live up to it. Oh, okay. Well, that, that set me up because when I started believing that and I started trying to live up to that, I found myself falling short. And uh, it kind of puzzled me. So anyway, I ran into some guys who were kind of, kind of nerdy kind of guys who were, anyway, they were about as unchurchable as you can find, but they had become Christians. And uh, so I challenged them with these questions and uh, they answered my questions. And when I said, okay, the final question is, why can't I live up to what Malcolm says I am? They said, Romans 3.23. I thought, for the, so for the first time I saw that sin was like a millstone around my neck. All right. I thought, oh, okay, so how do I get rid of that? They said, oh, well, that's great. So they laid the, and for the first time the gospel made sense, and that's how I, that's how I came to faith. And then did you uh, just sort of gradually fall into full-time ministry? No, no, no. Did you have a dramatic experience where you felt a calling by God? Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I didn't gradually fall into it. I knew, as a matter of fact, it's interesting. Right after I received Christ, I told my pastor that I had, he he evidently thought I was in a cult. So he said, you don't bring that stuff in my church. He said, well, that's fine. I don't like going to church anyway. So, uh... I stayed away from church for about five years, uh, but these guys who led me to Christ discipled me. That was the thing. So one of the things I did not want to do was go into uh, to full-time ministry. I didn't want that. I wanted to be a businessman, make a lot of money, and be generous. You know, hey, what's wrong with that, right? And so I, at that time, I thought all God wanted from me was my spiritual life. So he had my spiritual life, but I had everything else to myself. And about two years later, God challenged me. He said, no, 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 no. It's all of it. All of it. So I yielded everything. And I said, I know you don't want me to be a pastor, but I'll yield it to you. And uh, well, sure enough, he, uh, after graduation, I uh, went into campus ministry for a while. Then eventually I came to understand, like I said, after the five years away, I came to understand that they were real Christians in the church. You know, I really thought that church was a, an anti-Christian institution, believe it or not. Mm. But I began to realize, okay, it's a different system, but there are real believers there. And slowly but surely, I came to really rec- recognize God's people are there too. And then over the years, I, shall I say, I put it in technical terms, I developed uh, emulation software to allow me to function in the mm. church. <laughs> and so, so I, you know, I pastored a couple of times and all the rest of that. And so, in a sense, I'm. I'm kind of like a like a Macintosh computer that runs Windows also. Okay, oh. I'm right at home with the unchurchables, people who are allergic to church if you do it. I'm right at home with them because I used to be one of them. And I still am in my natural state, but at the same time in terms of my emulation software state, I, uh, I totally I can, I understand what church is and I, and I love the church and all that. So that's kind of how it all developed. Yeah, wonderful. Well, our Beeson people already know you fairly well. We know both you and your wife, Karen, have been here a number of times before. But just in case we got some folks listening today who don't know a lot about your professional life, let us remind them 
that you're a prof at Reformed Theological Seminary, RTS. That's right. And even for folks who think they know all about you, your job title now is they're calling you Provost Professor of Theology and Culture and the Senior Fellow of the Edmiston Center right. at RTS. Tell us, what, okay. what does that mean? What are you doing? Uh, you know, RTS has eight physical campuses and one online campus. So a provost professor is kind of like a professor at large. I, I can teach on all, all, all the different campuses if, if they want me to. So I'm not tied to one campus. So that's what that means. The Edmiston Center is a, we have a curriculum that focuses on Christianity in the hard places. That is, today, the overwhelming majority of Christians are under some kind of persecution or difficulty or hostility or whatever. And so what we're looking at is the dynamic of a minority culture versus a dominant culture or a subdominant culture versus a subdominant culture. And so we're looking at that and we're seeing that throughout history, the people of God have always been a cultural minority and they've always been under some kind of difficulty. Mm -hmm. American Christianity is the outlier. American Christianity, uh, people in American Christianity think of Christianity as being a part of the uh, establishment, but that's not that's not true. Uh, and so we look at those dynamics between, uh, the, you know, the, the body of Christ and the rest of society in most of the world and throughout much of history. And we say, okay, now if we look at the uh, American issue of race, let's say, it has exactly the same dynamics, the dominant versus subdominant. And so when people, you know, get all up in arms about racism and all the rest of that, okay, yeah, racism exists, but it's not everything, you know. It's 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 significant, but it's not everything. But we look at when we look at the church, the church in most of the world and in throughout much of history uh, has been in that same situation. So we're looking at how they navigate, how the church navigates those in those waters, and we're trying to share the lessons and the wisdom that comes from that in, uh, to our students at uh, the Edmondson Center. Mm. Uh, the Edmondsons, you'll hear me talk about that about them uh, later on. But they were a couple, one generation out of slavery who did some remarkable things in the uh, Congo Free State, mm. uh, a lot of remarkable things, and so they they really. Uh, fit the profile of the kind of things we want to do. You know, we want to be, you know, God has placed us where we are, and we need to understand the wisdom that God wants us to exhibit where we are. Not to say that we're, we're satisfied with the status quo. We certainly are not. But, but, but there's a lot to be learned from our brothers and sisters, like in Cuba, mm -hmm. like in uh, uh, Iran. Um, yeah. Afghanistan, I mean, good night. Iran has the fastest growing church in the world now, you know. And there's a lot to be learned from that. And we look at the early African-American church, you see some of the very same, uh, same, same uh, patterns. The early African-American church was persecuted by the establishment church. It was persecuted by uh, non-Christian fellow slaves, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, my wife has just finished doing a dissertation on, on that very same thing that happened in the... Uh, in the uh, on, on the island of a St. Thomas, mm -hmm. uh, looking at a, the first African-led church in the Americas. Um, so uh, it's, it, those are the those are the things we need to look at. Yeah. And uh, so if we if we do that, focus on the kingdom, then we can we can kind of be inoculated against the the poisons of Christian nationalism and. Right. And what I would call critical Christendom, which is trying to, you know, they they, they try to Christianize critical theory, which is 
which is ridiculous, but anyway. Um, so anyway, it, it seems like we need to focus people on uh, the kingdom and how, and how radical it is compared to uh, all these other ideology, uh, ideologies. Yeah, and the history you're just talking about <clears throat> provides me with a great segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. We've got you here today to give a lecture at lunchtime on <clears throat> a forgotten missions legacy, which I think is going to be about African-American forefathers, four people who were missionary right. pioneers. That's right. Tell our listeners, uh, we're going to put it on the website and they can go watch the lecture later, but tell them a little bit about what you're going to say. Well, if I was to ask you who was America's first uh, missionary, what would you say? <laughs> this sounds like a trick question. Kind of, kind of, kind of trick. Okay, uh, let me narrow it down. For America's first missionary after America became America. Now there were some people who did some stuff before, but yeah, America's first missionary. Do you? You know, there's a, there's a, there's an answer everybody gives me. Mm. I'm trying to remember the name of the, the. There was a famous black missionary in the yeah, late that's 18th right. you century. Got it. You Did got I it. get his name right or get late it right? 70s? Yeah, yeah. Uh, George Lyle. George Lyle. Oh, George, George Lyle. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, George I've written Lyle. about him. Yeah, right, 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 right. Who went to the Caribbean? That's know? right. That's yeah. right. That's right. He was in. Uh, so he was American. A lot of people give the credit to somebody else who came 30 years later. But, uh, but yeah, there's a quite quite a a, a remarkable. Um, uh, history of uh, missions involvement on the part of African Americans. What happened was that African Americans and Afro Caribbeans, uh, they both had a a, a, a a burden for for the motherland. You know what I'm saying. So yeah. there was a lot of involvement over there. There was kind of like what I call a trialogue, uh, kind of a between the church in Africa, African American church, Afro Caribbean church. So there was there was there was quite a quite a lot of activity going on, and uh, but of course, historical things and economic issues and everything led to the the devastation of that movement. So, uh, yeah, that's the kind of a thing. The history books don't don't record it, you know. But there's quite a significant uh, movement that that came up. Well, you're talking to a church history teacher now, and you, you've got me thinking, we've got to say a little bit more about this. I kind of want you to preach my sermon for me. <laughs> but, well, why should anybody care about all this stuff that happened a couple hundred years ago, 150 years ago? How do you think it's related to what we want Christians to be doing today? Well, why would, she, why would we look, why did God leave the Old Testament with us? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's church history. You know, so we need to know all these things so we can have wisdom as to, so we can be men and women of Issachar, so we can know, know the times and know what Israel should do. Yeah. And so uh, that's, that's why we need to know this. That's great. All right, I want to tell our listeners about a book that you published just a few years ago entitled Free at Last? Mm -hmm. Question mark. Mm -hmm. The Gospel in the African-American Experience. <clears throat> what were you trying to do in that book and how are you praying the Lord's going to use it moving forward? Okay, um, that book is about how God works through history and culture. And I used the African-American experience as my case study. It was amazing that uh, several people caught on to it when it first came out. One of the first letters I got was, was from, from a man in, uh, in New Zealand. And he said, oh, thank you for writing the book. It's really, really revolutionized our ministry and blah, blah, blah. I said, what on, on earth? You know, and so I finally met the guy and I talked to him. I said, he said, he said, yeah, I'm a Maori. I said, what's that? He said, oh, yeah, you don't know. So, you know, the Aborigines of New Zealand and the dynamics between the Aborigines or the Maoris and the and the settlers were almost identical 
to the to the African American white dynamics, and uh, that began to open me up to realizing, wait a minute, we're looking at a bigger pattern here. This is not just racism. This is this is fallen humanity. This is this is we all do this stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, I began to realize that you know what was what I had. You know, what I'd stumbled upon. Several other people have written me later on and said how that helped them to understand the history where they were. So that was that was it. That was it. Uh, so it's it, it had an African American focus, but was universal in in uh, in uh, application. Uh, since then, by the way, I'm I just finished two new manuscripts. One is a sequel to Free at Last, and the other one will be a companion to both. But it will be a one just about our current cultural crisis, a theological analysis of our current cultural crisis. Well, all right. Well, give us a little taste. I mean, I was going to ask you for some wisdom on navigating faithfully, biblically, courageously, thoughtfully, uh, ongoing problems of racism in our right. society right. today. Are, are you getting into that a little bit in the, in the new book you've got coming out? Uh, you're, you're such a wise theologian. Kind of help us a little bit here. Think, think this stuff through. Well, well, yeah, you know, we get into it, but I'm, but I, but see, what I'm trying to show is, okay, let me put it this way: there, there is a danger that's happening today of a of a groupthink that's emerging, and the groupthink is very shallow in its analysis. Okay, like for example, um, let's say that uh, okay, the train wreck in uh, Palestine, uh, Ohio. Ohio. Yeah, there are people who's who's. Groupthink is so ridiculous that they would come up and say that's that's racist or something. That's because of racism. As a matter of fact, there was a scholar at some college recently that wrote that if you have a neat house and an organized pantry, that's a racist thing. Oh my! Now, come on, give me a I break. I got to go mess things up back at home tonight. Right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You don't want to be racist. Well, what's happened today is that. What we are looking at, there are real problems out there. Uh, there is such a thing as racism. There is such a thing as systemic racism. But everything cannot be attributed to systemic racism. You know, you know there are other factors that come involved. There's cultural factors. There's economic factors. There's a whole lot of other things. And you know, what's happening today's simplistic uh, way of thinking, they want to attribute everything to one thing. And so I could have a, uh, a hangnail for example, and I think everything is because of my hangnail, but I could be, I be I could be ravaged with cancer, you know. But I don't pay attention to that. I'm trying to get this hangnail, mm. so I'm not saying the hangnail doesn't isn't uh, real and isn't significant, but there are other things that are involved. So I'm trying to get people to look back and see. Let's look at the whole picture. The other thing too is that I'm trying to help people to understand that all this goes all the way back to the garden. Okay, just all the way back to the garden. And that the issue in the garden wasn't obtaining the data or the information of good and evil. That wasn't it. The issue was on what basis do we judge good and evil? Do we base it on the Word of God or do we base it on human opinion? And so what, is, what happened, the sin in the garden was that we opted to judge good and evil based on human opinion. That's... A, that, that's to determine what good and evil are, that's God's uh, thing, you know, that's not ours. But we tried to stage a coup against God, as it were. And uh, so everything, so human beings became self-referential. And, uh, of course, not, we're living in a day of what we call uh, self-referential incoherence. You know what I'm talking about, right? And that, that's the problem. I'm, that's what I'm trying to get people to see, and that it's not enough, say, 
Uh, it's it's okay. For example, it, it was a. It, I, I do not deny the historical significance of the election of Barack Obama. I, I really that was an, that was an incredible thing. Mm-hmm. However, I separate the historical significance from the actual policies he implemented. And now, when I look at the policies, I'm I'm not that impressed. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because so it's not enough. It's a wonderful thing to have had a black president, but on the other hand. If the if the black president implements policies that are harmful, then that's a whole other issue. I think we have to look at those kind of things. What kind of uh, policies? What is their worldview, uh, et cetera? In the old days, in the old days when we were all oppressed more than we are today, uh, shall I say, there was a kind of a, a camaraderie we had, and and there was a kind of a, a, a Christian consensus that was among, you know, ninety nine percent of African Americans. But that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. That consensus no longer exists. So, you take, uh, well, I can, I, I might as well say it. I'm going to get in trouble anyway. Take an organization like Black Lives Matter. You know, if you would ask me, do Black Lives Matter? I say absolutely, no question about it. No question about it. That's the truth. Okay. Now, if you would ask me, do I believe in what the organization called Black Lives Matter is trying to implement? I'd say no. I, I, I don't. I disagree with it. However, I do believe Black Lives Matter, and so that's what's happening today. It's becoming a little murky. Yeah, uh, to, I know, agree with you. Hard, yeah, and I agree about the problem of the groupthink. Yeah, but probably, I mean, you want a white guy like me, right, to get further sensitized <laughs> to some of the actual problems with racism we've got in our mm-hmm. society. You don't want to let me off the hook here. You want no, me, no, you want no, me not... to go home tonight thinking a little bit better. Yeah, about sins of. Commission, commission and, and omission. omission. That's right. Know. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, what what do you want me to think about there? I want to. I want to. I want to. I want to uh, to encourage you strongly into repentance, faith, and obedience. I mean, it's like you should do me. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm not going to expect you to know every little detail of every little thing. I mean, there are things that happen in the society. Like there, there are millions of microaggressions. Let's put it that way. That you wouldn't even re- realize, but mm-hmm. I hear all the time. You yeah. know, a politician comes along and says, "We are a nation of immigrants." Now, what am I supposed to make of that? You know, my ancestors were either kidnapped and brought over here, or they were already here when they were <laughs> they were conquered. Yeah. So, so how, so what am I supposed? Now, okay. Now, having said that, I'm not going to get bent out of shape about that because I know that the that the politician is not meaning to put me down. You know what I'm saying? So at least I, I I'm old enough to kind of recognize that. So. But I would point that out, you know, and say, hey, you know, have you ever thought of this? You know, so uh, there's many, millions of things like that. So that's why it's important for us to be in the body of Christ, to be able to share with each other how things affect us and everything. And I'm not going to get into a, I'm not going to call you a racist because you you uh, made a statement like that, because I know that that's not necessarily where your heart is. I want to know, know where you're really coming from. And if I find out that you are, then I, I would challenge you very hardly. Yeah. But uh, the thing is, my identity, when it comes to identity, the only thing that can be my absolute identity is something that happened pre-fall. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I'm a human being. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a strong identity. But even after the fall, there was something that God did. He gave us a salvation covenant. And so my other ultimate identity would be the fact that I am in Christ. Okay. Now, everything else is secondary. 
You know, I love being an African American. I, I think it's the, you know, I, I would, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't change, you know. But, uh, but that's a secondary identity, although it's strong, you know. But it's, but it's legitimate because it's, 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 it's due to things that, you know, you can look at my DNA and know I'm an African American, you know what I'm saying. Now, when we start using other things as our identity, like behaviors and opinions and things like that, <clears throat> those things aren't, aren't strong enough to be our absolute identity. So in order for me to fit myself inside of that, let's say I want to, I want to, uh, yeah, my whatever behavior patterns I, I pick, I have to dehumanize myself to fit under that, and I'm not going to do that. Uh, and so, um, uh, but just because I have a secondary, a strong secondary African African American identity, my identity in Christ supersedes that, and that's where I connect with all the rest of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm, that's a so, wonderful thing. Yeah. Dr. Ellis, uh, we're really glad you're with us today. Can't wait to hear you talk uh, to the students at lunchtime. You may remember, we always like to end these podcast interviews by asking our guests what the Lord's doing in their life these days. Is he teaching you anything new uh, as you walk with him day by day? <clears throat> anything that we could conclude with that might edify our listeners spiritually? I find that uh, today I'm doing a lot more uh, international things. Uh, I just got back from Kenya. Uh, teaching some uh, almost 200 pastors on just a, a basic thing like the covenant, you know, and how you and how the covenant ties the whole Bible together. And they were so they were so so absolutely blown away. They never knew any of that. And I'm thinking, good gracious, a hundred so, uh, more than a hundred years of missionary activity in Kenya. What are the, what are the missionaries been teaching them? You know. Anyway, they were so encouraged and so empowered. And, you know, we just got through uh, doing some things in Cuba, which is kind of interesting. There's a, you can pray for, pray for the church in Cuba. They're, they're growing, they're, they're thriving, they're, um, they're just doing a wonderful job down there. And, mm -hmm. uh, and other places in the world. Uh, and, uh, of course, pray for my brothers and sisters in the hood. You know, I like to, I like to go there and do stuff too. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, I would say that, uh, I need. Um, I just. I just. I just want God's wisdom to do what I'm doing, and uh, and I thank God for the things that He's opening up. And uh, so uh, that's it. I'm dedicated to helping my wife finish her PhD, which she's almost yeah. finished with. <clears throat> Jesus, a few more, a few more sentences, and that's about it. You know. So uh, that's kind of what I'm about. I'm trying to be a good grand granddad now. I got. I'm a grandfather, and um, and uh, just. Uh, Trying to, trying to, still trying to help my kids, and I, I found out that when your kids grow up, you, you, you're not off the hook for being a parent. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> so anyway, those are just some things. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Ellis, for being with us, listeners. Uh, you have been listening to our friend, Dr. Carl Ellis. He is Provost Professor of Theology and Culture and Senior Fellow of the Edmiston Center at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's here today giving a lecture to the students at lunchtime. Uh, we're grateful to him for his presence, for his friendship. We're grateful to you too, listeners. We love you. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for listening. Goodbye for now. been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. 
please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.